Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chris's Courses. These are my classes from the Westlink Church of Christ. I'm Chris Perry, the Family Life Minister here. And we're currently in a series called Questions in Genesis. We're going through the book of Genesis and trying to look at it and see what questions it wants us to ask, to not bring our own questions to it, but to approach it the way the first audience would have experienced it. And then from there, see what it means for us today. So last week, we started with the first chapter, the first creation account there. And the questions that I think Genesis wants us to ask was, what kind of creator do we serve? And how does this God create, right? How does the way that God creates say something about that creator? We compared the Genesis story to another ancient creation story, something called the Enuma Elish, where in that story, creation was but one of many gods fighting uh, against each other. One god uses the other god's corpse to create everything. Uh, the, the gods are not, you know, good. They're, they're just violent. They're really just like us, but more powerful. And so we see Genesis as, in a sense, a response to that, uh, of a, a better vision of God, I think we could say. Uh, of course, God is depicted as powerful, but there are no rivals. God speaks, and it is, and it's good. And it's, it's orderly. There's the idea of God bringing order out of chaos, that that's what creation is about, and that's what we can do to be like God. That's what we're going to talk about some today, how we imitate this God and represent God. As we've been saying, Genesis addresses an ancient context with ancient questions, not modern scientific questions. Uh, God's Word always comes in ways that humans can understand, and what they could understand then is different from what we could understand now, and so that explains why this book is in the form that it is. You know, we looked at the, the cosmology, the way that everything was formed from this waste of water, and God kind of separates it, and, you know, for example, it seems like they were thinking that the reason the sky is blue is because that's water that's suspended above us. You know, we know that's not actually the case, but it makes sense that they would understand it that way, and so that shouldn't bother us in any way. One of the last things we talked about is that you can see creation in chapter 1 depicted as a temple. Temples, again, were essential to the ancient world and how they related to their gods. And so if all creation is a temple, uh, a temple always has to have an image of that god in it, right? That's where you would go and offer your sacrifices or worship. And so what's the image of God? in the temple of creation in Genesis? Of course, you know, the answer is humanity. So let's go back to that story a little bit, and I'll read from Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, 
It was very good. So we're talking a lot today about humanity. Uh, anthropology is the kind of fancy word for this. And I want to clarify some things here about language that's used. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for humanity is Adam, which is where, you know, it's also the name Adam. But the word Adam uh, does not mean male. It doesn't mean man, right? It used to be you could say man in English and refer to all humanity. That's really not the way that uh, people commonly talk today. So we need to see this. Uh, it's not a gendered word. It's talking about the creation of all humanity. And in this account, as we see in verse 27, male and female are created together. Uh, that's, this is how Hebrew poetry works. Uh, when it talks about in the image of God, he created him or them. Male and female, he created them. It, it's just saying the same thing in different ways. That's, that's usually how poetry works in Hebrew. Um, and so we have to ask, what does it mean that male and female display the image of God? I think that shows us pretty clearly that God is not exclusively male. And also shows that God is seen in community, in relationship. So everything that's good about being male, everything that's good about being female, those all come from God. One is not less than the other. Uh, and, and so also, you know, this idea that it's male and female together, right? It's community. That's where we see God. We see God in relationship. That leads into another question. Now, this is something I talked about last week as a modern question, a Christian sort of question that we can bring to Genesis that probably wouldn't be in the minds of the first readers. But I think it is a relevant question of, do we see the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1? Now, you see throughout this chapter, God saying, let us create, let us do this. Uh, and so that, you know, well, who's he talking to? Uh, there's, there's different answers for that. The, actually, the Hebrew word for, for God, Elohim, is plural, so it can mean God or gods. Um, it goes either way, although I don't think that you know, they thought there were more than one gods at this time. Now, it's possible that they would have imagined God speaking to like a heavenly court, you know, if God is like a king or a divine council of some sort, or maybe angels. They're not mentioned yet as being part of creation, but that might be what the earliest readers were assuming. So I think we need to see that it's not the intended meaning of Genesis, and it's time to be talking about the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, once we establish that, we can come to it and make the interpretive move of saying, we do see that there. The truth is there. Right? We have the Creator. We have the Spirit of God or the breath of God. Those, those words are the same in Hebrew and in Greek. And then you have God speaking, God's word, which as John 1 tells us is who Christ is. And as Christians, we do see Christ as the center of, of all scripture in some way. Not that it's making these, you know, always making allusions to him or prophecies about him, but that everything that we read in scripture somehow connects us to who Christ is. Uh, as John 1 says, all things came into being through him, speaking of the word or, or Christ. And so we do see that here in this story when we look back from a Christian perspective. But my point is that we need to be able to separate looking back from a Christian perspective from how the early Hebrew readers would have heard it. But as we think about this idea of, of Trinity, even here in, in creation, it gets, I think, to a question that we brought up a little bit last week of why does God create? 
Well, God creates community because God is community. You know, one of the, the fancy terms for this is social Trinitarianism, the idea that, that God exists as a relationship. And, and this actually makes sense from a very important statement from 1 John, that God is love. Well, how can you be love if there's no one to love? Uh, love is inherently relational. And so if God is love, then God has to be relational, in relationship with God's own being somehow. I know, I know Trinitarian stuff gets complicated. <laughs> I may hope I didn't lose too many of you. The point is, God doesn't have to create, right? God has divine freedom, and yet love always chooses to expand and include. And so I think we can make a case for that here, that God creates us and everything else because that's what love would do. And so the thinking, again, about humanity, it says that we're made in the image of God. And there's been a lot of ink spilled about what that means, and, and I'm only going to say a little bit today. But I, I think inherently there's this idea that we represent God to the rest of creation. Just like in that temple, the image, the statue would be a representation of that God. That's, that's our function uh, in this world that God's made. It means we're, we look or behave like God, not vice versa, right? You don't start by looking at us and see, oh, that must be what God is like. Um, it, it, you know, so when we see references, for example, even in the next story in chapter 2 of God's hands, well, that's metaphorical, right? God doesn't physically have a body or hands. That's just a way of, of speaking about God's action. Now, some interesting words that a lot of people have focused on here is God saying that we're made in God's image and in God's likeness. Now, again, in Hebrew, that's probably just meant to be synonymous. It's two ways of saying the same thing. And yet, a lot of uh, spiritual thinkers, mystics, have, have focused on this as two kind of different aspects of what it means to be human. Because we all have the image of God, and that is inherent. No matter what, every single, every single human being that has ever lived has the image of God. There is nothing that we can do to, to remove that, to uh, take that away. Everyone is made in God's image. And yet, we're not all like God all the time, right? That likeness is, is a goal that we're working to achieve. Uh, and so, but it gives us, the, you know, having both of those together, I think, is so important for us that we start with this foundation of knowing we do have God's image in us and we can strive to be more and more like God. Uh, we don't have to earn the image of God, and yet we also don't want to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm, I'm already as godly as I can be. Now, this image of God language, again, in their day, uh, was often a royal description. You talked about the king as being the image of God or their gods in their country. And so, again, this is a place where Genesis 1 is, is challenging the common assumptions of its day by saying that all humanity equally represents God. It's, it's actually more democratic. And so, we all have this image of God, but what exactly is it? And again, this is a place where there's lots more that could be said, but I think we should focus on it less as this inner quality, right? People have tried to figure out, is this humanity's ability to reason or be moral or to love? It could be, but I, I think as far as Genesis is concerned, it's really about a calling, about something we're called to do or be in this world. And so we see in this story here, this section, kind of a job description for human beings. Now, a lot of it centers, I think, on this idea of having 
dominion. That's mentioned in verse 26 and verse 28, and that can be understood in a lot of different ways. Uh, Now, it's very close to another word, which is domination. And if you look at human history and even look at the state of the world right now, I would say that's how a lot of us have chosen to use this, this image of God and actually using it in a way that's not very godly. Right? We're not called to dominate things. And so dominion is really more the idea of caring for creation as its creator does. This is a consistent theme through all of Scripture. Even you go to the book of Revelation at the very end, chapter 22, it speaks of this biblical promise of us reigning over all things, the new heavens and new earth. That's, that's bringing back this, this same calling that we've had here from the beginning. He also talks about subduing creation, and here it seems to be talking about making the plants and the animals more fruitful. You know, if you've done any gardening or cared for animals, you know that this is the case, that, you know, if you want them to really produce well, it actually takes some work, right? A lot of plants will just make more leaves, they won't make fruit, or they won't make uh, the good kind of fruit that we might want, unless we we tend to them, we prune them and, and care for them. And so, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to be a vegan, although if you read closely, meat is not allowed for humans until after the flood. But it does mean we're supposed to interact with creation in sustainable ways. So whatever that looks like, you know, I know we're not all farmers or hunters, but we all interact with creation every single day. And how are we doing? Are we caring for it with this loving dominion that God calls us to, or are we using it for our own ends? in a way that's not going to last forever. Uh, I think we should all know it's probably been more of the second. So, moving on, uh, we're moving towards the second creation account in chapter 2. And again, if we were doing this in class, I would have an exercise that we do right now, where I would have you read through and list out the order in which things were created. And so when I did this in class, a uh, little bit sneaky, I gave some people a sheet of paper that said, read Genesis 1 and write down the order that everything's created. But then I gave other people a sheet that said, read Genesis 2 and write down the order in which things are created. And I didn't tell them there were two different versions. And so what happens is when I start you know, asking people, okay, what, what's the order that you had? You find that it doesn't seem to line up, right? The first account, which we heard last time, right? God creates the sky, the light, land and seas, plants, sun, moon, stars and then all the creatures, finally with humanity. Uh, What you see in Genesis 2, starting in verse 4, is it's creating that God creates the heavens and the earth, and then God creates uh, the man or the human. I think the human is the better way to read that. And then plants come, then animals are formed, and then woman is formed at the end of the story. So those don't line up. So, and we have to ask, what do we do with that? Well, First, we're just acknowledging there are two creation accounts in Genesis. Just like in Scripture, we have two accounts of Israel's monarchy, Samuel and Kings, and then Chronicles. And we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. And in both of those other cases, they don't tell the story the same way. And we're not really troubled by that. So, should we be troubled here? And I think we can read this second account in Genesis 2 as not intending to be all-inclusive. The first one is trying to talk about every single thing, although you could argue, you know, well, what about this or that? Um, but there are significant differences. I don't think we should just, uh, we, we have to see that. 
Although actually, I guess that does lead into what are the options for addressing those differences? And the first one that a lot of people choose is just to ignore them, right? You just go from one chapter to the other. You don't think about it. This is the way our brains work is that if, if we're not looking for something or we're trained to not see it, then we're not going to see it. And so a lot of people, uh, and this is much of my history, we just ignore the way that they're different. Another approach, another option for addressing these differences is attempting to harmonize them and say, well, no, they don't, they're not saying it differently if you read it in this way. And in my experience, not just here, but in, in most passages where these sort of things come up, these attempts to harmonize actually just create more problems. Uh, the answers that people provide just give more questions. And so a third option that some people take when they see these two different accounts is, all right, well, we just reject Scripture, right? You see it here. The first two pages of the Bible don't line up, and so I guess this is all just, you know, hogwash. Let's just throw it out. I don't think we want to take that option. I assume if you're listening to this, you, you actually do care about Scripture and want something, a, a better way of, of understanding this. So the fourth option is to reevaluate our assumptions about Scripture and how it works. Because if we come at it in this way, these differences, or even contradictions, if you want to use that word, I know a lot don't like that, these differences don't negate the status of Scripture as inspired, as coming from God. It just challenges certain expectations of how we think inspiration should function. Problems aren't problems unless we make them problems. And I'm not necessarily trying to trouble you if this has never bothered you. I do think we should be aware of what's actually in here because you never know when it might become a problem for you or a problem for someone else. You know, wrapping up, uh, I want to just tell a story of another podcaster, actually, that, that I've, uh, whose work I've really appreciated. His name's Mike McCarg, uh, sometimes called Science Mike. And he's someone who grew up in the church, very you know, fundamentalist, evangelical, and knew the Bible pretty well, at least he thought he did. And he also cared a lot about science. You know, he would admit he was a bit of a nerd growing up. And he uh, had this incident in, come up, this kind of crisis in his life. And his response to that was, I'm just going to go and read through all the Bible. And that's going to you know, give me all the answers so that I can uh, deal with this crisis and, and help, help out here. And so he started just reading very closely through Scripture and one of the first things he noticed is when in Genesis 1, it talks about this firmament, right? This bowl, basically, that's, that's above the earth. And, you know, being a man who knows some science, he realized, okay, there, there's not a bowl of a creation. Well, that's, that's tricky. And so he just, he put that on a list. He just started making a list of all these things that didn't actually line up with how we know the world to be. And he did that going through all of Scripture, and the end result was he eventually became an atheist. Uh, you know, all, he, he had this approach to Scripture given to him that said it has to work this certain way, and when he saw very clearly that it didn't, he lost his faith. Now, eventually, he had an experience of God that brought him back to faith in a very different sort of way. Uh, there's a lot more to that story that I won't get, won't get into here, but that doesn't happen for a lot of people. Some people just see these problems and they don't know what to do with it, and so they're just done with Scripture and done with faith. I don't want that to happen to us. This is why this matters to me. I want you to know that this is how Scripture works, and that's a good thing. We see the way that God is working in it, and we can actually come to love God more and see the way that God 
is revealing God's own self in different ways. You know, next time we'll get to Genesis 2 and see God is depicted in a different way, but both accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as different as God appears in some ways, it's still the same God. And this God is still good, whether God creates with his hands or God creates with a word. Both show that God cares for us, that God is powerful, and that God is loving. So thanks for being with us today. We'll see you next time for Genesis 2.